you guys are going to Vegas. Think so? It's incredible. I'm so excited to be here with you tonight, and I'm excited that you've come to worship and celebrate what God wants to do. I love the theme of this, which is Aspire, which is going where no man has gone before. What does that mean? I remember when I was seven years old, I started working in this little book that my mom helped take me through, and here's what we would do. If you know this, say it with me. As a royal ambassador, I will do my best to become a well-informed, responsible follower of Christ, to have a Christ-like concern for all people, to learn how the message of Christ is carried around the world, to work with others in sharing Christ, and to keep myself clean and healthy in mind and body. You guys remember that? Anybody memorize that when they were a little kid? When God began to do that in my heart and life at the age of seven, I believed it. And I grew up in my, grew up in my home with men like Manly Beasley and John Bassanio and John Moore and others that would come and preach and teach us the Word of God. Men like Jim Gale who were missionaries to Vietnam and is now very seriously ill. I grew up believing that that's what it was about. And I still believe that that's what it's all about. God has called us to make a radical difference in the world. Stetzer's made it clear. The stats are not clear. The stats are not good. We're in decline. But it's like Vance said, I've got news for you. The church around the world is exploding. And the challenge that we have is how do we get to be a part of that? What does it mean to be a part of the global body of Christ? I don't want to just hear what God is doing in China and hear what He's doing in India and hear what He's doing in the Congo and hear what He's doing with college students in Iran. I want to be a part of seeing God doing something massive here. I don't want to miss out on that. Now I want to ask you a question. What would it look like if the Great Commission were fulfilled? I've got good news for you. Did you guys know that the Great Commission is going to be fulfilled in about 10 years? Yeah. Is this a Baptist place? <laughs> Let me say it again. The Great Commission is probably going to be fulfilled in about 10 years. Now here's what I want you to understand. You may say, Bob, how in the world is that going to happen? It's going to be impossible for it to not happen. We're all connected in the world like never before through the internet, through social media, through television. God showed me that as I was watching the Olympics on television in Dallas, Texas. And what I watched was the commercials for Coca-Cola celebrating 100 years and GM celebrating 122 years. They're all over the world. And yet they don't have the Holy Spirit. They've not been given the mandate to take the gospel to the world. What would it look like for the Great Commission to be fulfilled? Can we do something? Let's focus forward a little bit. Let's pretend like the Great Commission has been fulfilled. What would that look like? I mean, not just, okay, well, more people are going to witness and we're going to do more of the same thing, but what would it look like? I used to think that for the Great Commission to be fulfilled, we just had to do more of what we were already doing. More preaching, more witnessing, more church planting, more money, more of everything everything that we were already doing. But I'm convinced of this. When the Great Commission is fulfilled, it's not going to be because we just do more of things that are important, but it's going to be because things 
radically different are happening. God allowed some unique circumstances to happen in my life in order to experience that, in order to see it. God began to speak to my heart through two different questions. The first question that came through the Holy Spirit was, Bob, when is Jesus going to be enough for you? I'd become obsessed with growing our church and making our church as big as I could, and it was going in reverse, and it really wasn't doing good. But in the context of that question, I began to realize that Jesus had to be enough. And there's two things it led me to. First, it led me to a discovery of the kingdom of God. And when I discovered the kingdom, it meant two things. First of all, I wanted to live the Sermon on the Mount. What did it mean to live the Sermon on the Mount? Because Jesus has a pretty radical definition of what it means to follow Him. And so I began to do everything that I could to live the Sermon on the Mount. And you know, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, some people would say, it's impossible. And yet it was the apostles who would say, imitate me, mimic me, do this. And if they would just do it, then lives would be changed. So it meant to me, first of all, that I wanted to live that. But the second thing it meant was that instead of being the biggest church in the area, we would church the area. Now something very subtle happened that would have a profound impact on me for the rest of my life in ministry. And here it is. I stopped thinking like a pastor and started thinking like a missionary. Here's how a pastor thinks. This is my church, and I have my church, and I'm going to reach this city. But here's how a missionary thinks. I want to church this city. It's not just about my church. It's about the multiplication of the church that God has given me. And that's a radically different model of ministry, a radically different idea. The second question that the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart was simply this, and this was in the early 90s. What if the church were the missionary? What if the church were the missionary? And I began to think deeply about what that meant, and what I began to realize was, wasn't the Great Commission given to everyone? Or was it given just to the missionaries and to the pastors and to the religious leaders and the denominational leaders? And as I began to read that, I began to realize that basically what we've done, we are funding a few people to do the work that God expects all of us to do. I thank God for missionaries. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. But missionaries in and of themselves are insufficient to fulfill the Great Commission. If it's left to missionaries and pastors, we've got a few million. If it's left to disciples, we've got two billion. Do you understand the implications for that? And so as I began to understand that, we began to pray, and we began to pray, Lord, where do you want us to go? because we wanted to focus on a place. You know, I've grown up where we're touching this continent, that country, we're touching the whole world. But I began to think if a church was going to make a difference, what if we focus on a specific spot? And God led us to Vietnam. I didn't want to go there, but there was a man in our church who was an atheist that we led to faith in Christ. And he said he wanted to go to Vietnam. And I told him, I said, nah, let's don't go there. My dad is a pastor. He buried soldiers. I grew up afraid of the Vietnamese. I was thinking I would have to go fight. The year I registered for the draft, it stopped. But God spoke to my heart. He spoke to this leader's heart. And we wound up going, and we began to work. And he was a doctor. He could go anywhere. And we started having these exchange students come to our church from Hanoi. I didn't even like it at first. I tried to talk the members out of not doing it because I thought, what are we going to do with these Buddhists in our church, these communists, these atheists? And I was nervous about it. But we began to pray about it, and we began to evaluate, and we said, all right, we're going to let them come, but we're going to have to be very careful because we don't want any problems. Well, good things happened as a result of those kids coming. Their parents are some of the top leaders in the whole country. 
And so something extremely good happened, and one of the kids' parents wanted to meet me. And so I went to Hanoi, and by this time I'd learned to dress like Rick Warren and not wear any suits. Had to go buy me a suit because I'm going to meet with these top political leaders and all this kind of stuff because that's what their parents did. And so we go in, and I'm at the airport, and I'm waiting, and they come, and they get me off the plane. And the first question the man asked me is, why would any intelligent man believe in God? My response to him was philosophical apologetics. I just walked him through it. You know, I'm from East Texas, and I learned apologetics. Number one, the Bible says so. Number two, I feel him in my heart. Anything else is, a, is an excuse. So he's asking for more than that. So I begin to go, and I begin to walk him through philosophical apologetics, and then I explain to him why I believe the Bible was the Word of God, and if it was, then Jesus was God. He looked at me, and he said, I've never heard this before. Would you come back and share this with some of my friends tonight? His other friends are some of the top leaders of Vietnam, both then and now. And so I sat in a room, and I began to do that and share with them. And they just said, this is incredible. Would you come back, and would you start bringing some Bibles and meet with us and help us understand? And I thought I was being set up, and I said, I can't do that. And they said, why? And I said, because the government won't let me. And they looked at me, and one of them grinned, and he said, we are the government. And they were. These men were the government, and one of these men handed me his cards, and I realized how much the government they were. And he said, you'll never have any problem, just hold on to this, and if you do, that was 85 exchange students ago. And we just had a crop go back, we have another crop that's on the way, and what happened was, in that meeting, somebody asked me the question, they said, Bob, when the Catholics used to be here, they built schools. We need 6,000 schools, would you be willing to help us out? And I said, well, we're Christians. He said, I don't care. I said, well, if people ask us about our faith, we're going to answer the questions. He said, look, if you would just talk to people and your people would talk to people like what you just did, we're not going to have any problems. That was 17 years ago. And God has done some awesome things as a result of that. We had, so we started doing some schools. We were asked to do clinics. And what we began to do, we began to organize our church members by their jobs. And it began to make a radical difference. It engaged our church. Our church began to go to Hanoi. They began to love Vietnamese. They were afraid of going to North. We would hear all these stories about not going. But as the kids would come and live with us, it changed everything. Then we were asked to do the exact same thing in Afghanistan after 9-11. I didn't want to go there. It's too long of a story to tell you about it. But I wound up agreeing to grow. So I grew up my beard and me and two other guys. And we went across the Afghan desert. We literally went to the governor's office and went in to see the, vice, the, the man who was the assistant or the vice governor. And I told him, I said, my name is Bob Roberts, and I'm a Baptist pastor from Texas, and I simply want to serve you. I won't preach, I won't pass out tracts, but anyone who asks us about our faith, we will answer those questions. And so if you don't want us, it's okay, but we want to serve your people. The man looked at me and he said, thank you for being honest. He said, I appreciate it when you come here and you tell us who you are and what you do. So I began to ask him, so, well, tell me some of your needs. He didn't give me little cheap needs. He gave me some really expensive ones. One of them was a kid's hospital. So I came back home, called every Presbyterian and Episcopalian that I knew, got enough money, went back, dedicated a $10 million children's hospital, and we were sitting in a rug in, his, in, in a house there in this particular city we were in. And as we were sitting there, I was very bored. And I loved to hike in mountains. And so I made the statement, I'd love to see Afghanistan and see the mountains. And this guy leaned over to me. I didn't understand who he was. He leaned over and he said, Bob Roberts, you want to see mountains? 
I show you mountains. And so I leaned over to the guy I was with and I said, is it safe? He said, Bob, you're in Afghanistan. Nothing's safe. I said, well, should I go? He said, you definitely need to go. You don't understand who this guy is. His dad is the tribal leader for the southern part of all of Afghanistan, and, and uh, it'd be incredible. So we did. He grabbed my backpack. He got in his SUV. It was a nice uh, Lexus or something like that. He got in the front seat to drive, machine gunner by him, put me categoried, another machine gunner by him, put a guy with a rocket launcher in the back. Now, I'm from East Texas, and I love deer hunting. But I'm telling you, you've not experienced hunting till you've hunt camel with a rocket launcher. It is incredible. And so we go and we drive for two or three hours into the desert. We go into this compound where his father is and I meet all the brothers and all the father's sons and they know I'm from Texas so they get this camel out and they're laughing at me trying to get me to ride it and I do. And I begin to laugh even more. And he says, you funny man, Bob, I show you more Afghanistan. I said, no, no, this is enough. He said, no, it's okay, just don't talk. And I thought, oh no, this is not good. And so he takes me into the desert. He shows me his village where he grew up. He needed a school. It was $10,000. I said, okay, I'll do it. Then he turns around and uh, we get back in his SUV. And I wanted him to understand who I was. So I said, do you understand what I do and who I am? And he said, you're a humanitarian. I said, yeah, but did the governor explain what I do in America? He said, no. And it took forever for me to help him understand. And finally, I explained, I'm like a Christian imam. And he said, this is wonderful. You're going to love this. And so I said, all right. And so he gets on his satellite phone. It's late at night, about 10. We pull into these walls. There's four walls in the middle of the desert. There's soldiers that are walking on the parapet. And we're on these rugs on the desert sand. And there we are. And while we're there, we're sitting there. We get through eating. He claps his hands. And in walks about 15 young men with one old man. And he began to translate. And he said, Bob... These are young imams from four villages. I have told them a Christian imam from America has come and they can ask him anything they want. I didn't know what to think. I'd never really met imams before in my life. And all of a sudden, I began to talk and for like four hours, I began to explain the Old Testament, the New Testament, who Jesus, I did it all wrong. I didn't know how to talk to Muslims about Jesus, but started with the virgin birth. I mean, did a lousy job. But I shared it with him. Umar began to brag about me building a school, and all of a sudden he said, Bob, would you build a school for us? And I said, build a school for these guys? All of these imams are wanting me to do it. Now, you've got to understand, I'm from Texas, and we're a little competitive. I'm from deep east Texas, and I want the Great Commission to win, not the Dawah. That's like the Muslim Great Commission. And so I'm going in my mind, what, what do I do about this? Because the reality is that if you're going to do anything in those villages, you're going to have to work with the imams or you're not going in. And I begin to pray, God, what do I do? And then I begin to think, WWPD, what would Paul do? And I thought, what did he do? He went to the synagogue. He went to Mars Hill. He met with the rabbis and the others. And I begin to pray. And this is literally what I prayed. God, if what I'm doing is wrong, take my life. I don't want to do anything that would bring shame or dishonor to you. And so I said, I'll tell you what, guys. What if I get you your own Christian imam from the U.S.? We start a lot of churches. We require them to work around the world. And I said, what if I get an imam for each of your village? We build a school. 25% of the students have to be girls. You read the New Testament. We'll read the Quran, And let's build a relationship. 
That was four schools, two hospitals, agricultural projects, and three orphanages ago. And the work continues. That man, Umar, is now in charge of international relations in Afghanistan. And he's always asking me, bring more pastors to, to Afghanistan, would you please? So when I go there, I'm met at the airport by imams. Now, as a result of that, just to go really fast, some people had heard that there was this evangelical pastor who really was evangelical, believed that Jesus was the only way to God. The Bible was the Word of God, but he's got all these Muslim friends that he's working with. And so the next thing you know, I'm invited to speak at the World Islamic Forum in Doha. And I stand up and I simply make the mistake, or make the mistake, make the, make the, make the, make the statement that as an evangelical, I want you to know that I do support the Jews. But I also want you to know that I equally support and love the Arabs, the Palestinians, because God loves them all the same. You would have thought I said I became a Muslim. I wasn't ready for what I experienced. And as a result of that, it wound up opening massive doors that's led to me getting to connect with world leaders all over the world. And there's a group of 30 of us that get together about every six months and I'm not a world leader, but they are. But they're intrigued by this guy who really believes this about Jesus. And as a result, it's made a massive difference. Let me read you a verse, and I want to just list seven key things that this verse teaches us, and that if the Great Commission were fulfilled, what it would look like. Here's the verse. Colossians 4.2. Continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also that God may open a door for us to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, if the Great Commission were to be fulfilled in the next 10 years, it's going to be game changers that are going to take place. It's not just going to be doing the more. So what would it be? Open the door. Game changer number one, we would seize an open world. We would seize an open world. The world is open. There's nothing private anymore. Vance told me that this is being streamed live. It's on the internet. There is no such thing as private conversation. Everything we say is public. If Muslims want to know what we think about them, here's what they're going to do. They're going to Google Muslims, Southern Baptists. They've got a better than average chance of showing up and hearing what we're doing at this convention. If, if they want to know what we think about Jews, if they want to know what we think about Buddhists, if they want to know what we think about anything, they're here. What that means is, how do we speak about the gospel? The whole world is listening. We need to think about what we're saying, how we're saying it, because we live at a time like no other time in history. This connectivity is not the result of globalization. It is in the scheme and the plan of God. He knew the Great Commission would have to be completed, and He has connected the whole world for His glory. Don't get upset over Twitter. Use it. Tell people about Jesus. Don't get upset over the internet. Use it for the glory of God. He wants His name to be known. Game changer number one. If we're going to see the Great Commission fulfilled, then what we're going to do is to seize an open world and talk about Jesus. Just, just let me say this too. 
Don't vilify people. Never, never, never vilify somebody of another religion. Don't make fun of Jews. Don't make fun of Muslims. Don't say anything ugly about Muhammad or Abraham or the Dalai Lama. Just exalt Jesus. If you will exalt Jesus, the gospel gets out. If you trash other people's religion, they're not going to listen to you talk about Jesus. That's like walking up and saying, your mama stinks. She's ugly. I don't like her. But when we instead exalt our Father, we're celebrating who He is. Number two, game changer, open to us a door. We're going to have to connect with the global church, connecting with the global church. Listen to me. The Great Commission is not going to be fulfilled with us just going. We must connect with the global body of Christ. It's time for us no longer to send but to receive the body of Christ from around the world. We are now, according to Jim Slack, the third largest, most unreached nation in the world. Does that break your heart? Does that burden you? Numerically, there are more evangelicals, believers, in places like China and India than there are today in America. Listen to me, people. We need the global church. They're having a revival. The church is exploding. We need to sit down, shut up, stop preaching, take notes, and bring it back home. Instead of going and taking death that we have, we need to listen and bring back the life. See, here's what I want you to understand. The Great Commission is polycentric. And when it's fulfilled, chances are it's going to come from the east. It's going to come from the south. That's not bad that's wonderful. And so we're going to have to connect with the global body of Christ. Game changer number three, it says open a door to us. What that means is we're going to have to release the whole body of Christ. We've made the primary function of reaching the world, the preacher and the missionary. It must be the disciple. For us to raise up and make disciples of the two billion people, we are talking about a different kind of follower of Jesus. We're talking about a disciple. Here's when I was growing up how we define discipleship. Learn, grow, and go. Listen to me, that's not how they did it in Acts. Let me tell you what a disciple was. Hear and obey. If it's learn, grow, and go, we're always going to be waiting to go. If it's hear and obey, that's the premise. God can move through me right now, right here, and use me. I would say to you pastors what Jesus said to those who had Lazarus. Loose them and let them go. God's calling the church. The only metric or the primary metric we've been successful with in missions is what? The mobilization of the masses. Why? God is calling the body of Christ. Listen. I am far more concerned about seeing apostolic pastors raised up than I am great pulpiteers and great orators. Because let me tell you, I don't want the churches that come out of Northwood, the churches that we plant, to have the primary metric of how many people showed up and how many downloaded my sermons. I want to see those young men mobilize their bodies throughout the end of the earth every person in that pew. So what's the strategy? It's sitting there through the jobs. We need to get on the grid of the city, not just the Sunday event. Game changer number four. We're going to have to ha see the emergence of global theology. What do you mean by global theology? There has never, listen, there has never been a time 
when theology has been more important and it's going to continue to be important. But we can't make it so complicated the average follower of Jesus can't understand it. And so those who don't know our gospel, we need to explain it to them, but it's got to be clear and simple. Let me tell you, most of our members can't explain the Trinity. There is no more important question for the church in the 21st century than the Trinity. Because we're not talking about the Trinity, we're talking about the definition of God. And if our people can't explain it, how are they going to respond to the Muslims that are here, to the Buddhists that are here, to the secularists that are here? We must grasp the critical nature of understanding theology, but it's got to be simple. And when we do, it's clear about who we are. Here's what communists did for me. Communists enable me to think philosophically. Muslims forced me to think theologically. Why do I believe the Trinity? What does it mean? What are the two natures of Christ? Fifth game changer. Start with the hand and not the head. Start with the hand and not the head. Here's what a lot of us do. We want to start preaching and we want to, you know, sit down and talk to someone and explain the gospel to them. And we just think it's a mental conversation. It's not. I'm friends with all these imams and these Muslims. My wife has a cooking club with, with Jews and Muslims and our church members, and we're building relationships. Do you know why? If we were to go door knocking on Muslims or Jews or anybody else for that fact, they're not going to listen. But when we come together and we do stuff together, it's different. I'm close friends with the imam of the largest mosque in DFW. He grew up after being five. He was, in, he grew up, he was born in Pakistan. Five, he moved to London. He's now there in Dallas. He's become a very good friend of mine. And I've gone over to his mosque. He comes to our church. He's wanting to, I've asked him to take me to Mecca. He's told me I'm going to have to be a Muslim. So every time I see him, he said, you ready to go to Mecca? I said, you ready to take a dip? You know, I want to see the guy come to know Christ. We talk about the gospel. Not long ago, he heard me talking to some guys, and he heard I was going hunting. He said, Bob, would you take me? And I said, sure, I'll take you. But here's the thing, Zia. You're going to have to take off that Pakistani thing you wear. You're going to have to wear blue jeans, a t-shirt, slick your hair back, and talk with a Mexican accent. You start running through East Texas with a 12-gauge yelling, Allah Akbar, we're all going to die. So I took him. And I've been taking him. Some other imams found out about it, and they all want to go hunting. And he told them, he said, well, you're going to have to wear blue jeans and talk like a Mexican, but it's not that hard. You know, let me tell you something. I love that man. I want him to know Jesus. And I'm not going to give up. Listen, sharing my faith isn't a one-time event. So starting with the hand, it's serving. Number six, here's going to be a huge game changer. Do we start seeing these five, these five things happen? This six, are you ready? Evangelicals, American evangelicals need to become close friends, even with Muslims. Why? Because there is no greater issue of prejudice than that issue. And we as evangelicals need to be at the front of the line saying we love you in the name of Jesus. Amen? Listen, there's some Muslims watching this thing on the internet. Let me say it again. We love Muslims. Amen? I mean, we send missionaries to work with them. We want to serve them. We love Muslims. Amen? I want them to hear you. I want them to know that there are Baptists, Southern Baptists. We are not people that hate Muslims. We love them. We've just got a few who woke up on the wrong side of the bed their whole life. Now, what would it do? What would it do if we did that? Number one, we would help our missionaries around the world working with the Muslims in ways you cannot imagine. Number two, we would model civil faith and how we can coexist. Number three, we would be able 
to love the hardest people to love. Do you know why Jesus said love your enemies? Because when you love someone, they're no longer your enemy. Here's the point. We don't have the right to pick and choose who we're not going to love. Listen, those who don't know Jesus, we need to love them all the more. Fourth, it's the key to the Great Commission. I'm convinced. We know that Christianity started as a Jewish movement to Isa. If our faith is true, if the Great Commission is fulfilled, it will happen as an Islamic movement to Isa. And when we stand before God, I want to be able to stand before the Father and Him know, Roberts, you helped them get in. You didn't stand and push them back. Let me tell you, when you see religious gatekeepers, the Bible makes it clear that there were many priests and rabbis that came to faith in Christ in Acts. When we see an Islamic movement, what that means is Muslims and gatekeepers will come to faith in Christ. If that's the case, they're never going to listen to our message if we don't love them, if we don't have a relationship with them. It gets us in the world, and it just may prevent a war. Seventh and finally, game changer, move from the plan of salvation to an invitation of God. I conclude with this. I learned the Roman road, evangelism, explosion, and all of them. But here's what happened. I began to discover that when I would speak to Jews or Muslims, it didn't always work. So let me share with you how I share my faith. And I'm even sharing it with, my, with not just Jews and Muslims and, and others, but I'm sharing it with people in America now because it's defining God at the very beginning, at the point of the Trinity. So here's how I share my faith with people. When I'm talking to a Jew or a Muslim, I make it real clear. You're exactly right. God cannot come to earth and touch unholy man. That's what the point of the Trinity is all about. The Father who created the world who was holy and could not touch sin sent God the Son, the Word, who came down to earth who did two things. He identified with you because He was with you. He knows how you're tempted. He knows how you feel. Not only did He identify with you because He was God, His atonement mattered. So He took the penalty of your sin. You say He's gracious and merciful and benevolent. The reason He is, is He paid the penalty. So the Son who took the penalty is back with the Father. We accept the Son as God in the flesh, and we turn around, and He gives the Spirit to live inside of us. Don't you want that kind of life? He's waiting.